With a patented universal adaptive feel, Lisa is designed for all types of sleepers. Try a Lisa mattress in your own home for 100 nights risk-free. Available in the US, UK, Canada, and Germany online with free shipping. This 100% American-made mattress ships compressed in a box right to your door. Or try it at the Lisa Dream Gallery in Soho, New York City, and Virginia Beach, and over 80 West Elm stores nationwide. For Memorial Day, get $160 off when you go to leesa.com slash women. The year is 1948 and the world is no longer at war. The city of Paris is ready to begin again. A ship arrives on the coast and sends a fresh deposit of expats into the chaotic and vibrant streets of the city. On board is a 36-year-old American woman. She towers over almost everyone at a height of six foot three. Her voice warbles and dances across her vocal cords, creating an immediate impression of both enthusiasm and chaotic restlessness. She doesn't speak any French, and she has no idea what she wants to do with her life. These are inauspicious beginnings for a woman soon to become one of the most famous chefs of all time. In a little over 10 years, not only will she be a master of the French language and culture, but she will have begun building the foundations of a cuisine empire that would change the world. The woman is, of course, Julia Child, the American entrepreneur and kitchen genius who brought French haute cuisine back across the Atlantic. She accomplished this by devoting herself to one very important business principle. Julia Child invested in herself at every stage of her career. Through this, she started a cooking phenomenon in the United States. Welcome to Great Women of Business. I'm Vanessa Richardson. And I'm Molly Brandenburg. In this podcast, we don't just tell you about the women who changed the face of business. We tell you how they changed the face of business. We'll spotlight business principles that you can use yourself and dive into the complex lives and unique challenges faced by female visionaries, icons, and leaders. New episodes of our 12-episode series will come out on Tuesdays, and you can find us on your favorite podcast directory. While you're there, we'd truly appreciate a five-star review. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and on Twitter at Parcast Network. Today, we are taking a look at Julia Child, the world-famous chef and culinary educator. She was a true entrepreneur who pulled her career out of thin air. Her infectious joy created the massive industry of foodie television and led to a boom in the recipe publishing industry. She broke down barriers for women in the kitchen, both on the ground and in the culture at large. She saved American cuisine from boredom and tedium. Her business genius emerged because she refused to be cornered by society's expectations. She knew life's primary investment should be in oneself. 
However, she utilized many other business principles as well, such as a dedication to making the world a better place. Another principle was seeing value in bridging cultural gaps. She utilized television as a tool for publicity and communication, but balanced this out with her principle of remaining focused on authenticity above all else. As her career went on, Julia never resisted change. As such, she invested in the next generation of chefs. Through each of these business principles, Julia was really just expanding upon her initial investments in her own career and skills. Keeping her career centered on these principles kept Julia focused and respected. She made the world accept the notion that anything Julia Child created could be one thing and one thing alone. Absolutely delicious. Happy cooking and bon appetit. But before we can witness her triumph and discover these principles for ourselves, we need to learn of her struggle. Everything began comfortably enough on August 15, 1912, when Julia Carolyn McWilliams was born to a wealthy family in Pasadena, California. Despite the upper-class notions of her family, Julia McWilliams always had a rebellious streak. In her own words, quote, I was sort of a comic, just normally nutty. End quote. She played sports, dreamed of becoming a novelist, but mostly Julia socialized. She was always reaching out to the people around her for fun and adventure. This adventurous spirit did not extend to the kitchen, as with many wealthy families in their neighborhood, a hired cook prepared all of their meals. The McWilliams lived by a strict meat and potatoes diet. Accordingly, Julia never even thought about venturing into the kitchen or expanding her palate on her own. It just wasn't within her range of perception. After stints in both private high school and college, Julia graduated from the Massachusetts school Smith College in 1934 with a history degree and no idea what to do with her life. Her desire to explore sent her eastward to New York. Where she worked in copywriting for the firm W and J Sloan, Julia tried to keep up with her writing and repeatedly submitted to magazines around the city, including the New Yorker. Even at this stage, she had persistence. This trait would come in handy later, but when it came to journalism and opinion pieces, she didn't quite shine. She had to put her writing on the back burner in 1937 when her mother got sick. 25-year-old Julia moved back home to help, but it was only a few short months before Julia's mother died. In the wake of her mother's death, Julia decided to stay in Pasadena to help her heartbroken father. Julia herself views this as a period of depression. She felt as if her life was headed in a frivolous direction. She had been handed wealth and opportunity, and yet hadn't found a way to link her passion for life into a direction for her life. In 1940, W and J Sloan offered her a position at their West Coast offices. Julia took charge in the advertising department, throwing herself into the work to distract from her dissatisfaction. 
However, she put too much of herself into the work, according to her superiors. When a print advertisement under her purview came back with minor rewrite requests from the New York offices, Julia disagreed with the changes. She didn't think anyone would notice, so she ran the ad without the requested alterations. Unsurprisingly, the bosses noticed. They didn't need someone like Julia telling them how to do their jobs, and a woman at that. She was promptly fired. After this occasion, Julia truly felt lost. She wrote the following in her journal, quote, When I was in school, I felt I had particular and unique spiritual gifts, that I was meant for something and was like no one else. It hadn't come out yet, but it was there, warm and latent. Today, it has gone out, and I am sadly an ordinary person. End quote. This isn't the part of the story one hears when learning about future business legends, but it's an experience shared by many before finding success. Walt Disney, for one. He was fired from his first big animation job at the Kansas City Star newspaper. His editor thought he, quote, lacked imagination and had no good ideas, end quote. One could also cite Vogue editor and fashion legend Anna Wintour, who once told aspiring fashion students that everyone should get fired at least once in their lives. Magazine Harper's Bazaar had fired the young Wintour for her strange ideas, and yet it were those same ideas that propelled her to her first big editor gig. Julia Child was in good company, though she didn't perceive it at the time. The Pearl Harbor bombings in 1941 gave Julia a new direction. All of a sudden, the United States of America had entered the war, and Julia wanted to serve her country. She took the first job she could find, joining the Aircraft Warning Service as a clerk in their secret information and filter center in Los Angeles. She helped manage the technology and intelligence that was hoping to protect against any airborne threats from Japan. Here's where we arrive at Julia's first true principle in business. She wanted to make a difference. Instead of reacting negatively to the absence she felt in her own life, she turned those feelings around and started looking for places where she could help others. She decided to fill her own emptiness up with a moral duty toward the people around her. She also inherently knew that whatever career path she followed would need to adhere to such a moral perspective as well. However she made her living, Julia wanted to find success in helping others create their own value and success. In 1942, she became a typist for the Office of Strategic Services, the agency that would soon become the CIA. Julia soon found herself working as a researcher directly under General William J. Donovan, the head of the OSS. And, believe it or not, this was the gig that led to Julia's first experimental recipe. By 1943, the OSS knew the Navy had a shark problem, especially when the creatures would swim too close to their deployed explosives in the water. So, the OSS set to work developing shark repellent. 
It was Julia's work that led to the breakthrough. The winning recipe was copper acetate mixed with dye. It would continue to be used in the field for over 25 years. Julia later wrote, quote, I could boil water for tea, but my first big recipe was shark repellent that I mixed in a bathtub, end quote. Such ridiculous ingenuity earned her a promotion. Julia was sent abroad and posted in Kandy Ceylon, or what is present-day Sri Lanka. While in Southeast Asia, she was introduced to the full range of Asian food that was only starting to trickle into American cities. This was the moment Julia first fell in love with the possibility of food. Sheer culture shock made Julia sit up and take notice of something that had been passing her by all her life. Food was more than just sustenance. It was joy, companionship, and pleasure, all in one package. On the professional side of her life, she was promoted yet again for her, quote, drive and inherent cheerfulness, and was sent to Kunming, China. Here is where Julia's life forever changed. She met a man, Paul Cushing Child. Julia was 32, while Paul was a decade older at 42. Paul Child was an OSS employee too, though he was an artist at heart. It was a mutual love of culture and fun that brought the two together. But it was a love of food specifically that sealed the deal. They bonded over a mutual hatred of terrible army food and soon made time to escape to exciting restaurants in Kunming together. Paul had a taste for the finer things in life. He loved literature, art, and the experience of eating. He had a true palate and a love of European food. Julia worried she wasn't sophisticated enough to earn his heart. Paul disagreed. Even when he was posted elsewhere, he stayed in contact. When they returned to America, they did so as a couple. In September 1946, Paul and Julia were wed. Julia spent a lot of time with Paul's extended family in New Jersey and began to spend some time in the kitchen. In her own words, quote, I was hopeless. Nothing I did seemed right. The kitchen was a place I truly enjoyed being, but I was convinced I had no talent for making food that tasted good, end quote. However, the seeds had been planted. Julia's dedication and spirit had earned her great success, passion, and purpose in her personal life. And without knowing it, her investment in this side of her life would soon pay dividends in the other. In 1948, Paul Child joined the U.S. Foreign Service. He got his relocation assignment, Paris, France, his favorite city in the world. He couldn't wait to share it with Julia. But neither of them knew that this was actually a career-making step for the 36-year-old Julia, not Paul. France would become the source of Julia's entire future. But it all started in September of 1948 with a meal at a restaurant called La Couronne in the city of Rouen. Paul helped her select this first French meal, and Julia later described that meal as, quote, It was the most exciting meal of my life. 
It was an opening up of the soul and spirit for me. End quote. With this experience, everything changed. Julia saw why Paul loved France, and she fell in love herself. Though learning the language was, by her own description, quote, a swamp of abstractions and ambiguities, end quote, she kept at it. In her journal, she wrote, quote, I worked on my French diligently and was able to read better and say a little more every day, end quote. One of Julia's prime language helpers was the Gastronomie Pratique, Etude Culinaire, a book of recipes that she kept by her bedside and read through every evening. Once again, we see that Julia always knew how to invest in herself. The only way to learn something new is to jump right into the fire. This was the best choice she could have made. She steered into her passion instead of into her fear of failure. In today's world, the strategy is advocated under a new, concise term, leaning in. Coined by Facebook COO Sheryl Sandberg in her business book of the same name, it specifically refers to the idea of women finding success in business through a structured approach to involvement and self-investment. That's where the act of leaning in comes into play. If a woman sees an opening, she should fill it. If she knows deep within herself that she has the skills to take it on, then take it on she should. Slowly, as one continues to invest in these different areas using the same overall strategy of investment commitment, the payoffs should arrive. Soon, that trickle turns into exponential growth. Julia hadn't yet reached that period of exponential growth, but as she continued to spend time fulfilling her own passion, she certainly saw the results appearing in her own personal happiness. Julia spent her afternoons venturing into the streets and markets. She spoke only in French until her stumbling and hesitant phrases grew confident. Every day in France gave her new inspiration. Again, in her words, quote, the important thing here is that food is a national sport, indulged in by all classes. One's best evenings are composed of a good dinner, and nothing else is necessary, and it takes the whole evening." End quote. This is when Julia Child's second business principle emerged. There's money and value to be found in bridging cultures. A vision was slowly emerging in her mind, a fusion of American pluck and French cuisine. American cuisine at the time was a rather uninspired affair. It was centered on convenience over culture, taste, and creativity. Julia saw that she could inject French cuisine's energy into American kitchens, too. This was the bridge she would work to build for the rest of her career. Julia wanted to change the heart of American food, but first, she had to fully understand French cooking. The clearest path she could see was through a training program at Le Cordon Bleu. Le Cordon Bleu was a chef's academy. As Spitz's biography puts it, Le Cordon Bleu had a very specific mission of its own. Quote, rejecting the age-old tradition of cuisine de grand mère 
which held that women learned to cook from family elders, they set out to establish a structured instructional environment based on the French Academy system that stressed classic skills taught by professional chefs. End quote. Interestingly enough, this meant that it was a viable route for many women chefs, as aspiring male chefs often apprenticed directly with master chefs. Women weren't allowed such experiences, so small culinary academies were their only option for education. That's not to say it was a completely progressive environment. Julia was first placed into the housewife cooking program on October 6, 1949. Naturally, she rebelled against such a label. There was only one spot left in the entire school in an intensive year-long program taught by master chef Max Bunyar. Julia, of course, leapt into the position without a second thought. She wouldn't let this opportunity escape her grasp. She would be the only woman in the class. And despite her growing knowledge base, she was woefully behind in actual cooking practice. Julia decided she needed to operate in such a delicate situation with a very particular attitude. As she described it, she would be, quote, cold-blooded and realistic, but would retain appearances of sweetness and gentility, end quote. The moment class ended, Julia would rush to the market near her home, grab a bunch of ingredients, and attempt to replicate her studies back in her home kitchen. Each and every hour of the waking day, Julia Child refused to let cooking stray far from her mind. By the end of the year, even Bunyard had to admit that Child was, quote, ready to be a chef in a maison de la haute bourgeoisie, end quote. Translated from the French, Julia Child was officially a real chef. The higher-ups at Le Cordon Bleu refused to accept such a result. She was an American, a heretic, and a rebel. They set her up to fail in her final exam, flooding the test full of recipes she had never even heard of. And so, fail she did. But we know Julia. She didn't accept others' definition of herself. She was despondent for a while, but resolute. She told Paul, quote, The main thing, of course, is that I know how to cook. Next, she decided to look for more like-minded people. She joined the women's cooking club, Le Cercle des Gourmets. Biographer Spitz describes them as a renegade group of female chefs who came together in 1927 in response to the pretension of the male-dominated Gastronomy Club des Saints. Ethel declared in front of the men and their wives that it was the women and the people in the kitchen who truly knew the food, and not the men who declared whether or not it was to their tastes. These were Julia's people, through and through. It was during one of these meetings that Julia would meet the woman who would change her life and catapult the aspiring chef onto the road to superstardom. Let's take a quick break to talk about Audible. Audiobooks are a great sidekick for summer activities like hiking, running, road tripping, enjoying downtime outdoors, and more. And with the largest selection of audiobooks on the planet, 
Audible lets you fill your summer with more stories like My Life in France, the memoir by Julia Child. Since it's so hard for me to find peace and quiet, this would be a great book to listen to while driving around town. As an Audible member, you'll get a credit every month good for any audiobook, regardless of price. Unused credits roll over to the next month. And if you didn't like your audiobook, you can exchange it, no questions asked. Start a 30-day trial and your first audiobook is free. Just go to audible.com slash greatwomen or text greatwomen to 500-500. That's audible, A-U-D-I-B-L-E dot com slash G-R-E-A-T-W-O-M-E-N or text greatwomen to 500-500. You can do it with audiobooks. And here's something else we think you'll like. Taking care of the litter box can be the worst part of cat ownership, but imagine having a lightweight, odorless, dust-free cat litter that monitors your cat's health and gets delivered right to your door every month. That's Pretty Litter. Pretty Litter keeps tabs on your cat's health by changing color when it detects common feline illnesses in your cat's pee. Most cat litter is heavy, dusty, and you need 30 pounds of it to last a month. But Pretty Litter is lightweight, 80% lighter than other cat litters. So one four-pound bag lasts an entire month for one cat. Pretty Litter even ships right to your door every month for free. Choose your ship dates, skip a month, and cancel any time. No tricks, no hassle, just a better cat litter delivered when you need it. Discover the world's best cat litter today. Go to prettylitter.com and use code WOMEN to get 20% off your first order. That's P-R-E-T-T-Y-L-I-T-T-E-R.com and use code WOMEN. Now, let's get back to our story. The year was 1950. Julia Child had attended a few meetings of Le Cercle des Gourmets. One of these 1950 meetings would prove to be the catalyst for the rest of Julia's career. At this particular meeting, Julia met two French women, the proud and skilled Simone Beck Fischbacher, nicknamed Simca, and the charming Louisette Berthold. Both were married women like Julia, but they were engaged in a Herculean effort of editing together a book of recipes made up of the secrets and legacies passed down by their families from the French countryside. However, Simca's last cookbook, What's Cooking in France, sold poorly in the U.S. To boost the appeal of the next book, the women needed to bring in an American perspective. Julia Child was a perfect fit. This was Julia's dream an American and a French woman working together, trying to bridge their cultures and expand fine cuisine's influence across the world. By January 1952, Julia had solidified this into her first business plan. Julia, Simca, and Louisette began holding cooking lessons to female American expats. They called it L'École de Trois Gourmandes, or the school of the three food lovers. Julia's business instinct was taking over before she even knew she wanted to be a businesswoman. Again, we return to investing in oneself. Julia certainly wasn't making a fortune from running these informal lessons. They weren't out on the streets marketing this as a true business. 
In other words, she wasn't in this to make money. Instead, these classes helped Julia to enhance her own skills, to share her skills, and to pinpoint any weaknesses in her thinking about her goals. One such weakness revealed itself very quickly. Many American women had no idea how to find or identify French ingredients. There was a vast difference in availability and use between French and American ingredients. Julia later wrote, quote, From that time on, I never lost sight of the fact that my sole purpose was to teach cooking to Americans, not the French. I had to find a way to translate everything into a pleasurable experience that a typical housewife could execute without fuss. Americans were enamored with canned goods and frozen food, and that's all they wanted to do, and sort of prided themselves on not being in the kitchen. And, and she came and said, no, this is unacceptable. You must get back in the kitchen. It's fun, and it tastes better if you cook your own food. And I'm going to show you how to do it. Work on the book continued unabated through 1951 and into 1952. The huge book condensed the ancestral legacies of Simca and Louisette's families. It also dedicated itself to revolutionizing the methods used to create these legacy dishes. It was the first of its kind. Such ambition was punished at first. On August 28, 1952, publisher Ives Washburn informed the three gourmands that their American defender at the publishing company had been fired. The book was in limbo. It needed a strong American voice to carry it forward. Otherwise, it could be doomed. This was one of the biggest inflection points in Julia's professional life. At this point, the book was a bit of a disaster. It was vague to the point that casual American readers would find it impenetrable. If it were to continue, Julia needed to take point. It would be a massive project. Julia saw she would need to deconstruct every recipe and find the simplest way into them. That meant cooking every recipe in the book over and over again until she knew them inside and out. Then, she needed to find the easiest way to communicate this to an audience completely unaccustomed to such cooking. Child said that, at this point, she began to see French cuisine as a frontier instead of a religion. It wasn't something to worship. It was something to explore. Only through such a perspective could she imagine herself having the energy— Julia Child needed to make this into an adventure. Here we find the first major culmination of Julia Child's primary principle of investing in herself. She took on this work without any promise of success or profit. She took it because she saw the opportunity as an outlet for her skills and as a chance to put her vision to the test. With Julia in charge, the search began for a new publisher that would truly support their ambitions. In January 1953, the Gourmands jumped ship to publishing house Houghton Mifflin. Then it was time to buckle down, cook, and write. Julia supplied Simka with three simple guiding principles. Quote, To stand up for your opinions as an equal partner in this enterprise to keep the book French, 
and to follow the scientific method respecting your own careful findings, after having studied the findings and recommendations of other authorities. All of these rules, when simplified to the core, were classic Julia. Be an independent, but not an ignorant one. Do your research, but don't worship it. Be your own explorer. Julia also made sure the pace was true. They went through 30 to 40 recipes a week. Simca held her own, but Louisette proved to be more useful as a charming face for the enterprise. In 1956, Paul received a new posting back in Massachusetts, and so the child's return to America. 44-year-old Julia kept up the lead on the book project, though a return to the U.S. prompted an existential crisis. Americans seemed far from ready to accept French cooking. Again, Spitz conveys the portrait of American food at the time. Quote, If big business had its way, traditional cooking from scratch would become extinct en masse by 1960. Convenience became the operational catchword, and with it came convenience foods, frozen fish sticks, milk in cartons, packaged cake mixes, canned vegetables, and TV dinners, end quote. Julia, obviously, was horrified. She wrote in her journal, quote, I am deeply depressed, gnawed by doubts, and feel that all our work may just lay a big rotten egg. Does the American public want nothing but speed and magic in the kitchen? End quote. In 1958, those fears intensified when Julia received a letter from Houghton Mifflin that stated, quote, With the greatest respect for what you have done, we must state forthwith that this is not the book we contracted for. It has grown into something much more complex and difficult to handle than the original. The book was rejected. To add insult to injury... Mifflin requested that the three women return their measly advance of $250. Julia still refused to be cowed. Throughout 1959, they condensed, condensed, condensed. Julia would prove this book was manageable, attractive, and useful. One of Julia's avid pen pals was Avis Devoto, the wife of a famed historian and a true foodie. She loved Julia and she loved her book. So she reached out to Judith Jones at publishing house Alfred A. Knopf. After reading through it, Jones was in love. She wrote back, quote, It was revolutionary. It not only changed the language of cooking, it made the difference between ordinary cooking and cooking with finesse, end quote. Avis sealed the deal with Jones and Knopf, the women would receive $1,500 for the book, plus a royalty rate. Julia had to make a tough call to Louisette and gently request that she take a lower cut than Julia and Simca due to her lower workload. This was Julia's first toe-dipping into business negotiation, and though it was uncomfortable, she came to it naturally. She knew her worth, and she wouldn't devalue it for anyone, even a friend. This wasn't just a casual group of friends cooking any longer. 
Once this became a business, Julia took charge. The business would come first. Without this commitment, a business plan can be too easily complicated by personal emotions. Just like when Julia was at Le Cordon Bleu, she needed to be cold-blooded and efficient. Knopf only wanted one name on the book for simplicity's sake. So it came to be that Julia Child was listed as the author of the 726-page tome, Mastering the Art of French Cooking. The book itself had a groundbreaking structure devised by Julia. It would list the process of the recipe on the right side of the page, while the ingredients would appear on the left of the divide as they were called for in the recipe. Simple, efficient, and brilliant. This design became the new standard for cookbooks. It was all in an effort to streamline the process for the audience. Julia Child knew cooking was intimidating enough without the cluttered recipe pages. There are many modern-day analogs to this streamlined approach in the tech industry. A perfect example of this user design innovation in another space had just debuted a few years earlier in 1955. It was called the Flashmatic. It was the first wireless television remote created by engineer Eugene Pauly for Zenith Electronics. Using a simple but effective method of using visible light to react with photocells implanted in the Zenith television set, it gave users the ability to maneuver through channels, change the volume, and turn the set on and off, all without leaving their couch. While Julia's innovation was all about active participation and Polly's focused on passivity, they share a common theme. Both innovations revolved around using modern information to enhance the experience of an audience. Interestingly enough, Julia and Eugene Polly had another thing in common. Polly didn't make his landmark invention until he was 40 years old. It took wisdom and experience to really see where innovation was needed in both of their cases. They never quit working, and eventually their time to shine arrived. It is never too late to start a business and thrive. Julia had an eye on user interface as much as any tech head. Her book also contained many illustrations to go along with the recipes. The work was published on October 16, 1961. It became a critical darling and a bestseller. It turns out that Americans were wondering what was cooking in France. They just needed a translator, and Julia was the woman for the job. Julia had taken a difficult opportunity and spun it into gold. Now she saw that an image took work to maintain in this new era of television and mass communication. She decided to strike a bargain with this world of images. She saw an opportunity to connect her business directly to her appealing character and life. Everyone loved authenticity, so Julia decided that authenticity would be her calling card. This all started in October 1961, when Julia and Simka accepted an offer to appear on the Today Show. While Simka was nervous and quiet. Julia proved herself to be a natural. This was a surprising accomplishment for a 49-year-old who had never before been in front of a camera. 
Her effect on the public was undeniable, too. The day after the broadcast, hundreds of people showed up to Julia and Simka's cooking demonstration at Bloomingdale's. Judith Jones at Knopf expected to sell 10,000 books in the first year, but they sold that many in the first week. This was the wake-up call for Julia. Visibility mattered. So her third business principle was that image and publicity mattered. It seemed that there was something about her that attracted attention. It was time to harness the enthusiasm she had once feared was listless silliness. It was time to utilize that enthusiasm as her primary marketing tool. The big break was always destined to be television. When Julia turned 50, the moment of destiny arrived in February 1962. Boston Public Television Station, WGBH, invited her onto their book review program, People Are Reading. Usually the show was quite dry. The host was a local professor who liked to discuss only the most literary of literary works. Needless to say, cookbooks weren't high on his list. Julia insisted that they follow up the interview with a short cooking demonstration. WGBH's producers, led by Rudy Marash, had never orchestrated such a show. On the night of the taping, Julia took full charge. She smiled at the host and then the cameras. She said, quote, I thought it would be nice if we made an omelet. They're so delicious and easy to make. End quote. She led the host across the stage to the demonstration setup, and Julia made an omelet on camera completely at ease. The audience ate it up. Aside from the novelty of watching someone cook on screen, she had none of the stodgy reservation and pretension that usually accompanied such an act. There was a controlled, chaotic grace to this unconventional bounding across the screen, mixing ingredients and chopping vegetables. And then there was that voice. It was nasally but high-pitched. It could be construed as annoying in the wrong hands, but Julia knew exactly how to wield it for maximum joy. It felt real, like a strange but hilarious aunt you might meet in a kitchen during the holidays. The response was big. Marash instantly intuited that they could make a full series out of Julia. Julia was somewhat reluctant. She had loved the experience, but it took quite a lot of effort. It was Paul that convinced her the effort was worth the reward. It gave people an image they couldn't cultivate anywhere else. So the wife and husband developed a strategy to prepare for this big debut. Julia later wrote down their process, quote, We broke our recipes down into logical sequences, and I practiced making each dish as if I were on TV, end quote. They did this over and over again. Just as Julia had perfected every recipe in the Mastering the Art of French Cooking book, additionally, Paul began timing Julia as she went through the stages and helped choreograph her movements across the stage. As for dialogue, Julia knew it needed to contain the same authentic flair as her personality. She wrote, quote, All the material within each section has to be pretty ad-lib, as one never quite knows what's going to happen on the stove. 
The least one can say is that the shows will have a definite informality and spontaneity, end quote. It's a credit to Julia's business acumen that she saw this as a strength instead of a weakness. She knew how to talk just as well as she knew how to cook. She knew she could keep things light and fun without slipping into awkward silences. She would use each moment to educate and enlighten. On June 18, 1962, filming began on Julia's pilot episodes. She was worried, but Mirage told her to treat the camera like it was her best friend. It was perfect advice for a woman like Julia. She was a natural-born entertainer at dinner parties, so of course she could accomplish this. As they went through the three recipes that would center each of the potential pilots, Julia never faltered. Even her mistakes became part of the show's charm and utility. When a sauce came out too thick, Julia took it in stride and used this as an educational moment for the audience. Just a dash of cream, and it was fixed. In another moment, Julia forgot to bring the correct seasoning over from the other end of the set and gently chided her own forgetfulness. They decided to keep it in the cut when initial viewers found it endearing. Perhaps the most surprising move Julia pulled was, after finishing a souffle, she sat down at the nearby table, poured herself a glass of wine, and commended everyone for their work on the recipe. That's right, we, not me. This was Julia Child's fourth business principle in action, a commitment to personalized marketing. Her audience was on an equal level with Julia. She was promising to be her authentic self and allowing them to do the same. Julia needed to cement the idea that the audience was never a passive consumer when they watched her shows. She was doing this for them, and she wanted it to be a two-way relationship. Again, Julia's thought process mirrored the later ideas of nearly every social media mogul in the modern era. Today, it's all about engagement. It started with the like mechanism on Facebook and continues on to influence the age of influencers. People are psychologically drawn toward brands and businesses that seem human. People want to watch and buy from others that are accomplished but still clearly exist in the same universe. In a way, Julia Child can be seen as the direct ancestor of all social media stars and business leaders. To seal the deal on this approach, at the end of her pilot episodes, Julia took a sip of her wine and delivered her soon-to-be-famous sign-off, composed for her by Paul. Happy cooking and bon appétit! Julia's program, simply called The French Chef, debuted on WGBH on the snowy winter night of February 11, 1963. Plenty of people were inside and ready to be charmed. Following the debut episode, viewers wrote in, full of praise for this new host. One commented, quote, You are the only person I have ever seen who takes a realistic approach to cooking. There was a lot of foresight in Julia's commitment to authenticity. Today, authenticity in marketing has made a huge comeback. In the 1980s and 1990s, brands and businesses tried to stay ahead of the cool curve. They wanted their products to arrive fully formed. 
Yet one only has to look at the success of the startup Airbnb to see how times have changed. This company started out as a couchsurfing app. It appealed to community over comfort. Customers loved the ethos, perhaps even more than they loved initial experiences with the app. Airbnb was allowed this leeway because they were honest with their customer base. They weren't trying to sell a hotel-level experience. They wanted to connect people to others and to neighborhoods. Because audiences trusted them at the beginning, Airbnb's improvements in availability and lodgings never came across as a change in ethos. It was just an expansion. Julia Child's strategy took a similar approach to authenticity in branding. Julia was selling a human experience, not a perfect one. It was a winning combination. The French chef would run for ten years. It won the first Emmy for educational television, and eventually collected a Peabody Award. Yet, even with the show's apparent success, Julia was only paid fifty dollars an episode. And that included the food costs out of her own pocket. She truly was in it for the exposure. She knew it would pay dividends in the end. Again, the investment she made in herself was worth more than any short-term gain. Paul just couldn't stay away. He helped Julia with the stage directions and created the design of the set for her. Every evening, they would stay in and go over the recipes, with Paul timing her on every single move. Julia knew the environment so well that she allowed herself to be natural once she was on camera. By the end of the series, the television kitchen would be very similar to Julia's own kitchen in their Cambridge home. It served as an extension of her personal down-home brand and as a tool to improve her overall efficiency. By the end of 1963, she had recorded 34 episodes. These weren't easy to make either. Sometimes they would do two a day, with working days regularly stretching over 12 hours. Remember, Julia was 52 years old at this point, but she was just reaching the most productive time of her life. Again, this isn't so unusual, despite the normal narrative that success comes only to the young and brilliant. Some people need years of apprenticeship before they can make their mark. Take, for instance, Ray Kroc, the mastermind behind McDonald's global expansion. He was 52 years old when he met the McDonald brothers and discovered the potential in their small business. Another example of this can be seen in Laura Ingalls Wilder, who didn't craft the first Little House on the Prairie novel until 1932, when she was nearly 50 years old. It is truly never too late to commit to an idea and bring it to life. As for Julia Child, her meteoric rise was only beginning at age 52. By 1964, a year after its debut. The French chef had reached the national broadcast level that Rudy Marash had predicted. It regularly played in over fifty cities. Brands constantly plied her with offers, but Julia turned them all down. Soon enough, all labels came off of the products she utilized on the show. In her own words, quote, "I just don't want to be in any way associated with commercialism." End quote. 
She didn't want to harm brands she didn't use and didn't want to become a spokesperson for brands that she did use. Instead of being an obvious limitation, Julia used it as yet another signifier of her genuine commitment to her viewers. She wasn't trying to sell anyone anything but skills and the pleasure of cooking. In 1966, Julia graced the cover of Time magazine. Her story of late-blooming talent became well-known, and people loved her even more. She was a true vision of the American dream. Julia showed the world that it was never too late to become a success. At live demonstrations, she received $500 per appearance. This would be around $3,200 if adjusted to today's value. By 1967, Julia now made $200 per episode, and the crew size increased from 5 to 25. It was a genuine production now. Even so, almost all of her income arrived on the publishing front. Television was never the moneymaker in Julia's mind. It was the vessel for publicity. Knopf obviously wanted another book out of her. Julia, Paul, Simka, and Simka's husband Jean had bought property together in the French countryside. In 1966, they all retreated there to begin working on Mastering Volume 2. Julia received nearly $30,000 in advance this time, over 10 times the amount for the first book. Just as work on the book was ramping up, Julia encountered a health scare in early 1968 when she was diagnosed with breast cancer. While Paul was deeply concerned, Julia just kept working. Her diary entry from February 28, 1968, simply reads, quote, left breast off, end quote. To a friend, Julia said, quote, I'm going to get a false titty, and I'll have to wear a plastic sleeve on my arm, and I'm going to be fine, dearie, end quote. Work on Mastering Volume 2 continued unabated. Simka and Julia were increasingly at odds, though. Simka complicated and changed Julia's recipes without telling her. There was a hint of jealousy involved, too. While Julia clearly knew business better than Simka, the French woman was a better chef when it came down to it. She had also been Julia's teacher in many ways. Julia had to carefully balance this game of egos to get the book ready for its deadline. She accomplished this goal, and Mastering Volume 2 released on October 22, 1970. 50,000 more copies were ordered on October 23rd, when the initial print proved so popular. Running along with the French chef's debut in color television for the first time, Julia Child felt truly satisfied with her work for once. She began to see that her work had paid off. Her mission had succeeded. French cooking was now American cooking, too. However, things were also changing. Simka and Julia would never work together again, though they would remain in touch. Then, in 1974, La Nouvelle Cuisine arrived on the scene in French kitchens. The Nouvelle Cuisine movement pushed back against the heavy sauces and classical recipes of haute cuisine. Julia, to her credit, refused to push back or appear insecure. She disagreed with the, quote, 
crunchily underdone vegetables and blood-red steaks blew raw at the bone, end quote. But she didn't want to appear to be like the chefs at Le Cordon Bleu, who didn't want her to succeed back in the day. In the end, at least it wasn't canned food. The French chef finally ended its run in the same year. Julia decided her next book, From Julia Child's Kitchen, would incorporate more distinctly American fare, such as chowders, cookies, and pasta sauces. Reluctantly, she also embraced the use of devices such as microwaves and food processors. This decision-making in the mid-70s can be seen as Julia's fifth business principle, don't resist change. Hold on to one's values and beliefs, but don't struggle against the tide of new business. She saw that all it would accomplish was a sullying of her brand. This principle is reflected in many other successful businesses. A similar one in a very different industry is the Lego company. Since their creation in 1939, Lego had dedicated its marketing efforts solely to children and their parents. Clearly, in the minds of the business owners, these were the primary customers. However, at the dawn of the 21st century, it became very obvious that this simply wasn't true. Children still loved Legos, but so did adults, especially when it came to the most complicated and advanced of the Lego designs. Instead of ignoring this group, Lego's marketing strategies adapted to the times. Their biggest constructor sets, with pieces numbering into the thousands, were redirected at an older market, and they sold very well. In 2005, Lego also opened the Lego Factory Online that allowed anyone to design their own custom Lego sets and order them straight to their home. This had massive cross-market appeal, as both adults and children could let their imaginations and interests run wild, unrestricted by Lego's design team. They had ceded control to the people and profited from that choice. Back in 1974, Julia feared being seen as an aging woman past her prime, but this fifth principle kept her business alive for decades to come. Instead of becoming irrelevant, she became a member of the old guard, respected, admired, and still profitable. She was well on her way to her eventual $38 million net worth. Yet 1974 brought about a more personal tragedy. 72-year-old Paul suffered a series of severe strokes. Even as he recovered, it was clear that the man Julia loved, full of life and passion for the arts and culture, was slowly disappearing. During the 1975 book tour for From Julia Child's Kitchen, Paul wasn't able to arrange his wife's schedule as he once had, and Julia found the workload harder to handle. Due to these stressors, Julia found a return to TV unappealing. However, Julia knew her business was always going to depend on being in the public eye. She wistfully commented that, quote, if you're not on TV, people forget who you are, end quote. However, Getting back on screen was only going to get harder for an older woman in a superficial and fickle media climate. In order to secure her legacy, would she have to give up her authenticity? 
Now it's time for a quick break. Be sure to check out one of Vanessa's many other podcasts, Female Criminals. Thanks, Molly. When you think of a criminal, what do you picture? Do you picture a murderer, a gangster, a thief? Society typically associates dangerous crimes with males. But what happens when the perpetrator is female? Every Wednesday, my friend Claire and I travel into the minds and motivations of some of the world's most notorious women on our podcast, Female Criminals. You can learn about the infamous cocaine godmother, the little old lady killer, Bonnie Parker from Bonnie and Clyde fame, and more. Go to your favorite podcast directory and search Female Criminals. And be sure to subscribe to the show so you never miss an episode. Or log on to parcast.com slash criminals to listen there. That's parcast, P-A-R-C-A-S-T dot com slash criminals. Now, let's get back to our story. Julia Child found the answer in the form of a recipe a recipe for her beliefs that she could pass down in the form of a legacy. Her sixth business principle came into existence. She needed to help others achieve their business dreams. To do this, she needed to figure out what it really meant to be a leader in the culinary world. Rudy Marash came to Julia with a new idea for television in 1977. She wouldn't just be making single recipe episodes. Instead, they would focus on building a full menu. Julia saw it like this, quote, a meal-centric program for occasions like birthdays, Sunday night supper, or a dinner for the boss. A lot of plain old American cooking, end quote. This tapped directly into Julia's hosting instincts, developed over the years in her personal life as she made dinners for Paul's diplomat crowd. The show would be called Julia Child and Company. Judith Jones and Knopf also wanted another book to go along with this new television effort. However, Julia had recently hired a lawyer named Bob Johnson. He was a brutal, no-nonsense character who believed Julia had been exploited by Knopf. Ever since her negative experiences with Ives Washburn and Houghton Mifflin while trying to publish her first book, Julia had been suspicious of publishing houses. This came as a surprise to Judith Jones, who saw herself as a friend more than a business partner. That was her mistake. When Judith directly called Julia about Bob's pricey counteroffer, Julia replied, quote, I don't want to hear it. That's why I have a lawyer, end quote. So Jones and Knopf had to accept this deal that paid Julia much more up front. Julia revealed herself to still have that cold-blooded edge that she cultivated back at Le Cordon Bleu. Business was business when it came to publishing. Production on Julia Child and Company began in October 1977. Unfortunately, Paul's condition kept him from participating like he once did, though Julia still made sure to bring him to set. The show was a success, and a sequel series, Julia Child and More Company, debuted in 1979. However, when PBS didn't air this series in New York City, Julia saw it as a slight. She began looking for a new home on television. 
She found it at Good Morning America. In 1980, she accepted an offer there. She would fly in once a month and tape five or six segments all at once. As the 80s went on, Julia was allowed to let the dirtier side of her personality show, including more innuendo than ever. Broadcast television had finally caught up to her sense of humor. But Julia didn't forget her new mission in the midst of this renewed activity. In 1981, she founded the American Institute of Food and Wine. Its mission statement was to advance the understanding, appreciation, and quality of wine and food in America. This was a dedicated effort to spread cooking education and open it up to a more diverse student base, namely women chefs. Although the institute would always be a drain on her finances, Julia supported it for the rest of her life. She saw it as the conduit for her legacy to continue. Starting in 1983, she also made a conscious effort to support the Cambridge and nearby Boston restaurant scene. The new cuisine style was known as New American Style, and though it departed from Julia's foundational loves in cooking, she supported it nonetheless. She also, as we know, just loved people and found great pleasure in hosting parties for the new chefs in town. This extended into Julia and Marash's 1983 television effort, Dinner at Julia's. This could be seen as the progenitor of all traveling cooking hybrids to come. Julia traveled across the country, visiting various chefs in their own kitchens. She would shop for the ingredients in local markets and instruct the chefs in their own efforts. The season would culminate in a huge dinner party hosted by Julia. Though ratings were her most modest, Julia loved the activity of traveling and meeting new people. However, it did take a physical toll, and she developed severe knee problems. She needed to find a space of compromise between work and life, no matter how much it pained her. To start this process of winding down, she needed one last big payday. In 1985, Julia made her biggest deal with Knopf yet. $400,000 for a joint book and video series called The Way to Cook. It would become an encyclopedic look at Julia's life in cooking and become the capstone of her career. It was a huge amount of work, but Julia had a much larger support team of assistants this time around. They had long ago mastered the filming of recipes, and Julia now did a lot of dictation instead of direct writing. Her attention just couldn't be as obsessively focused as it had once been. However, this also meant her heart wasn't in the writing anymore. By 1989, the way to cook had consumed five more years of her life. She complained that quote, "bookery was so damn solitary." End quote. She missed her big TV appearances and truly felt her visual relevance was in decline. Perhaps this gnawing insecurity was fueled by the 87-year-old Paul's decline. This was also the year when Julia finally signed him into a permanent care facility, as his memories slipped away for good. Although he could not always recall who he was talking to, Julia called him every night like clockwork. 
Another terrible blow landed when Simca passed away in 1991. Julia was forced to accept the finality of death and knew that she too now would one day, quote, slip off the raft. But she never let this get in the way of her work. She produced a new series, Cooking with Master Chefs, in 1993, where she again traveled and worked with emerging talents like Emeril. One of the nation's finest chefs introduces you to some of her colleagues. I'm Bill Thompson with Between the Lines. Julia Child's new book, Cooking with Master Chefs, is a companion volume to her new TV program. I've always wanted to do something where I could be, be a commentator or as I call it, a Mrs. Alistair Cookie. This project spotlights 16 chefs from all over America. Well, what's interesting about it, I think, is this is contemporary American cooking. If you want to know what's going on, this is it. And if other cookbooks seem to leave you behind because you don't have a big, professionally equipped kitchen, well... What we did here was to take good, well-trained, fine, well-known professional chefs and put them in home kitchens, either their home kitchen or someone else's kitchen so that they're doing this because this is aimed at the serious home cook. Julia Child's new book called Cooking with Master Chefs, the companion to her new TV show, is published by Knopf. The second season became Julia's Kitchen with Master Chefs. She couldn't handle the travel anymore, but chefs from all over the country loved the opportunity to come directly to Julia's home in Cambridge, where the show was filmed. It was here that she developed an immediate on-screen chemistry with chef Jacques Pepin. Pepin and Julia would soon develop a roadshow called Cooking in Concert, which then became Julia and Jacques, Julia Child's final television show. Things were coming to a head. Paul Child died in 1994. Julia didn't let herself cry and went from his funeral reception directly to an American Institute of Food and Wine event. She knew that's what Paul would have wanted of her, to keep up the mission. She wouldn't let anything slow her down. In 1997, though, Julia suffered an infection from a broken knee, and this led to a small stroke of her own. She refused to back down from her shooting schedules. She said, quote, My work gives me purpose. My purpose is my work. Still, even she could feel her career coming to a close. In 2001, Child decided it was time to return west. She moved to Santa Barbara and gave up the Cambridge home she had shared with Paul for many years, the home that held her legendary kitchen. Every inch of that kitchen, designed by Paul, was donated to the Smithsonian Museum. Here, a representative from the Smithsonian describes the reverent display they set up inside the museum. First of all, we had to prove to Julia that we wanted to do something serious with the kitchen. We didn't want the kitchen because it was just a TV set. We didn't want the kitchen because it was just a, you know, pop cultural phenomenon. She wanted us to have a serious educational message. Some of them come in because it's like a religious pilgrimage. They love Julia, and they come to see this place that they believe they've been in, and, and they were in through television. So there was Julia's legacy, represented by the very tools she used to build her business. She had left it for the people, along with her books, her taped appearances and demonstrations, 
her recipes, and her educational institute. On the personal side of her life, Julia Child wasn't happy about retirement, but she loved Santa Barbara and still enjoyed hosting friends and admirers. Then, in 2004, her knee problems led to repeated infections and repeated trips to the hospital. Dialysis began. The medical problems led to a huge regimen of medication. But the medicine had a side effect. Julia lost her sense of taste. This was beyond the pale. Julia wouldn't accept such a cost, so she stopped taking the medication. When her friends protested, she told them, quote, I have to taste the food, otherwise there's no use sticking around, end quote. Her enthusiasm was finally running out. When her dialysis port grew infected and she developed a sepsis, Julia learned her quality of life would never return. So she refused further treatment. Her personal assistant tried to change her mind, but Julia simply said, quote, It's time, dearie. If I can't live the way I want to live, I'd rather not live at all. Now, if you don't mind, I'm going to take a little nap. Julia Child went to sleep on the 11th of August, 2004. By midday, August 12th, she had passed away. At the age of 91, the French chef was gone. She had finally slipped off the raft. However, she left this earth with her mission fully accomplished. Here, the representative from the Smithsonian defines what it is that makes Julia Child worthy of being remembered alongside the greatest documents and monuments of American history. She'll be remembered as somebody who altered the way Americans think about food, who changed the way we feel about the kitchen, who literally brought us into a world where the kitchen was the heartbeat of the family. Julia Child's life is an incredible thing to study. When it comes to the definition of American success, many believe it means winning early and often. It's the land of opportunity, after all. Timing is important, but another factor that's often forgotten is importance of keeping one's value and mission always at the forefront of any business plan. Every one of Julia Child's business principles always feeds back into that central idea of investing in herself. Every action she took was to make sure her life, skills, and business would always be improved. That first principle was to truly want to make the world a better place. Any idea worth exploring needed to have that intention behind it. It took the selfishness out of capitalism for Julia and zeroed in on why the best and most influential businesses have been founded on similar missions. Her second principle focused on bridging differences between cultures. She saw real value in cultural exchange. She believed that great things could be learned from others and that the spread of this information wasn't just valuable in a spiritual sense, but a financial one too. The third principle was visibility and publicity. Julia needed it. The primary method of communication in the 20th century was the image, 
And Julia knew working to get herself on television was well worth the effort, unpaid work, and countless hours under the hot lights. Julia's fourth principle represented a smaller-scale investment into her own authenticity. If she was going to be on TV, Julia wanted people to see the real her. She wanted people to join her instead of worshiping her. She wanted them to tune in and see something real and then come away from the experience feeling like they could cook too. In response to the changing of culture and tastes over time, Julia's fifth principle was that she refused to resist this change. She wouldn't fight back. She wouldn't become the barriers she faced in her own past. Instead, as her sixth principle shows, Julia began investing in the future of other aspiring chefs. This was a natural outgrowth of her overall investment in herself. Once she left the raft, as she often put it, only her legacy would remain. So to invest in that legacy, Julia Child made sure to lay the groundwork for others in the final years of her life. She supported other chefs when they deserved it. She shared platforms with them, and she spearheaded the charge for fine culinary education in the United States. Today, her legacy is seen in the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and Culinary Arts. It provides funds and grants to researchers hoping to further the study and understanding of cooking in America. And of course, Julia's investment in herself was also an investment in all women hoping to follow in her footsteps. She opened the kitchen to the casual cook and the university to the aspiring chef. As Child's biographer Laura Shapiro put it, the women of America had been waiting a long time for someone like Julia Child, and they were hungry. Julia's investment paid off. She fed the world in more ways than one. Thanks for listening to Great Women of Business. If you want to listen to any previous episodes of Great Women of Business, you can find them on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, and Spotify, or on our website, parcast.com, spelled P-A-R-C-A-S-T dot com. If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review or tell us what you think on social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram as at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. It seems simple, but it really helps our show. In the meantime, go break some glass ceilings. Great Women of Business is produced by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. Sound designed by Ron Shapiro, with production assistance by Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Carly Madden and Maggie Admire. Great Women of Business is written by Jack Bentel and stars Molly Brandenburg and Vanessa Richardson.